This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. Hello, I'm Ant-Man. Haven't you heard of me? No, you wouldn't have heard of me. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, dude? Nothing much. What's going on? I am doing quite well. Um, so today we're going to be talking about Edgar Wright's, I mean, uh, Peyton Reed's Ant-Man. Mm-hmm. And this week we're going to be joined by a very special guest with our friend Byron Lafayette from the Hollywood Files podcast. Welcome to the show, man. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah. So you want to uh, real quickly just introduce yourself to our listeners and... Uh, whatever you might be up to online. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so as uh, Gabriel said, my name is uh, Byron Lafayette, and uh, I am a, a journalist and a writer and a podcaster. Um, as uh, he said, I'm the uh, co-host for The Hollywood Files, uh, which is kind of like a true crime uh mix of film and murder and disappearances in Hollywood. That's my favorite mix. Oh, it's quite good, I have to admit. Like, you know, I know we're not supposed to say how amazing our podcasts are, but <laughs> I, I really do enjoy it. <laughs> um, and uh, when I'm not doing that, I uh, write short stories, and uh, I also uh, write a lot of uh, entertainment news articles that people sometimes like to read. And you troll MCU fans. Very much so. <laughs> I, am a Sny- I am a Snyderite. So, uh, as I said, we're going to be talking about Ant-Man. Uh, before we get into that, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating review and subscribe while you're at it. And if you want to follow us on Facebook, we're there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. And uh, if you like us there, you can keep up to date with all the, all the latest episodes and uh, leave feedback that can be read, up, read on the show. And uh, speaking of said feedback, I asked what our listeners thought about this film. And on Facebook, Joseph said, pretty sure that it's my favorite Marvel movie. When Hollywood went and still goes larger, Reed and company showed that going smaller can still be awesome. That and Paul Rudd is pretty funny. Josh Berkey from Victims and Villains podcast said, worst MCU entry. Oof. Who hurt you, Josh? Can't go there with you. Joshua said, seemed like a filler movie to me, but it wasn't bad. I think it's a filler comment. (laughs) Matthew said, one of the best MCU films and one of the best heist films. Edgar Wright's brilliance is beautifully interwoven. I feel like we are just going from one, like just the absolute highest (laughs) of highs to like complete lowest of lows with these comments. Kind of a fun movie, kind of replayed by then the typical Marvel origin formula, but in a more lighthearted way. Second Ant-Man got bigger and better than this one, I thought. And then on uh, Twitter, Cinematic Sound Radio at Sound Radio said, It's the best MCU film featuring not only the best MCU score, but one of the best superhero scores ever with an absolutely brilliant outside-of-the-box, odd metric dynamic main theme. Christoph Beck knocked this one out of the park, and Paul Rudd makes every MCU film he's in better. Wow. I have never That's... seen that level of effusive praise seriously and having just listened to the score this uh like yesterday i don't i, I might have some disagreements there <laughs> and then our favorite twitter follower mike at jarek said a whole lot of fun with more laugh out loud moments than we had any right to expect and ain't that the truth so uh, as we move into the main discussion i want to go over a bit of the very long and tortured process that it took to get this film to the big screen i'm going to go, so going back to the very uh the origin the character of Hank Pym as Ant-Man was created in 1962 in Tales to Astonish uh, number 27. I like that they got that into the movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. From writers Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and artist Jack Kirby, 
pretty much like every other Marvel character. <laughs> the character of Scott Lang, uh, the thief who steals the Ant-Man suit, was then created in 1979. Stanley really wanted to make an Ant-Man film in the 80s. Uh, he pitched a film based on the character to New World Pictures, who owned Marvel at the time, uh, but nothing ever came of it. Then in 2000, Howard Stern attempted to acquire the rights to make an Ant-Man film, but that also never happened. And I'm, I'm kind of happy that happened. That, that went nowhere. Yeah. I mean, I can I can already imagine the kind of things that a Howard Stern Ant Man would be doing, and I feel like that would have been like the uh, the O'Grady era. <laughs> yeah, no thanks. Uh, that same year, Artisan Entertainment entered a deal with Marvel to produce uh, several films based on their characters. Uh, one of them being Ant Man. I think the only ones they ever ended up making were like two Punisher films. Mm. <laughs> you know, I'll low key defend the Tom Jane Punisher movie. I've never seen any of it. Just I've, all I've seen of Punisher is uh, John Bernthal, and I like him. Then in 2003, a pre-Shaun of the Dead Edgar Wright and his pal Joe Cornish wrote a treatment uh, for Artisan, an Ant-Man film starring Scott Lang. To quote Wright, he said, basically doing a superhero film in inverted commas, and it take pla- takes place in another genre, almost more of a crime action genre. But that was turned down because Artisan wanted to do more of a family film. I wonder if his his original like you know 2003 pitch would have been an R-rated movie. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Cuz I mean at that at that point, you know, we did have like Blade and Punisher, so I don't feel like it would have been completely out of the norm to see that. Yeah. It's actually that, weird weird to see like how many R-rated comic book films there were in the late 90s and early 2000s, like way more than there are now. <laughs> mhm. It's almost as if like those were the only ones that could get made at the time. Mm-hmm. Just the, the whole landscape has changed so much. Then around 2005, Marvel having uh, reacquired the rights, um, and, but this would also have been before they had really gotten going and started the MCU. Uh, Kevin Feige, who would have just who would, wasn't yet in charge of Marvel, approached Wright to see if he was interested in making any of you know any of their properties into a film. So he gave them the Ant Man treatment that he had done for Artisan. Uh, then in early 2006, this would have been as the prep for the MC was in full swing. Uh, Edgar Wright was hired to write and direct an Ant-Man film with Joe Cornish co-writing. He was talking about this movie, about this film publicly as early as the uh, 2006 Comic Con. Then began many years of what Wright described as a holding pattern, where he and Cornish kept plugging away at the script and then occasionally going off to make other films of their own. And apparently Marvel wasn't rushing this film. Uh, from what I've read, it seemed like the only reason they were really going for an Ant-Man movie was because <laughs> Edgar Wright wanted to make one. Um, so they kind of just let him, you know, do his thing for almost 10 years, you know, just, you know, going off, making other movies, occasionally coming back and putting out a uh, a draft of the script or two. He said, uh, this one's not about the urgency of summer tent poles and, and things going into production without a script. So he was definitely wasn't rushed at all for this film. And also, it's crazy because, like, in the time between signing on to direct in 2006 and then leaving the project in 2014, uh, Wright made Hot Fuzz, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and The World's End. And uh, Joe Cornish went and wrote and directed Attack the Block. And together, they both wrote on uh, The Adventures of Tintin for Spielberg. So that's like five films released in between, you know, coming on and leaving this film. Then in 2012, it seems. Uh, that seems to be where things really started to get going for the film. Wright. Uh, te- uh, screened the test footage of Ant-Man, uh, that Ant-Man action scene at the San Diego Comic-Con that year, which uh, then le- did that leak online at the time or is that leak a later thing? I think it was leaked online because I think I remember the first time seeing it was like low quality. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be here 
is where Marvel then kind of stepped in and started to apply pressure to make the film more integrated into the MCU, um, which Wright initially went along with, you know, rewriting several more drafts. Then in late 2013, the film hit a couple of major setbacks. Uh, the first one was that the original plans to shoot at the Pinewood Shepherdton Studios in England uh, fell through due to local like legal land disputes. And then the second one was that Edgar Wright requested to delay the production so that he could go and shoot The World's End uh, due to one of that film's producers uh, developing cancer and him wanting to get that film out. Uh, so when it time, uh, came time to casting, casting was actually kind of done intermittently during the film's direction or during the film's development. Uh, all those years. Scott Lang um, was rumored to be the main uh, character, but there was no real conf- uh, confirmation about that. Um, even after Paul Rudd was cast, uh, it wasn't until Michael Douglas was cast as Hank Pym that it was then announced that Rudd would play Lang. Uh, it was reportedly down between uh, Paul Rudd and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, Rudd was ended up. It was announced that he was cast in December of 2013. Uh, there's also rumors that Adrian Brody was being considered, which he kind of entertained in interviews and stuff, which would have been a, a really interesting casting decision. Uh, and like I said, Michael Douglas ended up getting the role of Hank Pym. Though there are also rumors of Sean Bean, uh, Gary Oldman, and Pierce Brosnan all being eyed for the role. And I like all of those. Yeah, any one of those could have been really, really cool. Especially... I feel like the dynamic would have been most different with Sean Bean. That would have been like a completely, I don't know. I can't imagine the dynamic resembling at all what it is here in the actual one. Cause I could kind of see Gary Oldman. You take the, uh, the tortured aspects to an extreme. Yeah. And I would have been there for that. Um, in 2014, it was announced that Patrick Wilson, Michael Pena and Matt Gerald were all cast. Matt Gerald being, uh, the guy in the um, All Hail the King short. Um, so he was in that. And as as we mentioned on that minisode, he was also in Daredevil. So Wilson, as it turns out, was originally cast as Jim Paxton, though that role would go to Bobby Cannavale, who I actually really like in this. Uh, and I know y'all are a fan as well. Yeah, I'm not sure how how well mm-hmm. Wilson would have uh, would have fit in that role, to be honest. I would like him as Darren Cross, though. I think he would have been great for that he role. He would have been. I would have liked. I actually would have preferred him to uh, Corey Stoll. <laughs> I, I like Corey Stoll actually. <laughs> I would have liked Corey's or I like Corey Stoll like a lot in the role, but um, Patrick Wilson would have definitely been an interesting choice for him. But it's weird that they would have gotten him for the role of uh, Paxton. I don't know. Maybe this is. Is this before he semi blew up with uh no this would have been after his like stint in all the the James Wan horror movies. So, I don't know, I feel like they would have wanted him in a something a bit more dramatic than that cuz he wasn't really known he for comedies. He seems to be kind of an actor that Hollywood really doesn't know what to do with. They just kind of plug him into all these odd roles here and there. It's kind of sad. He's pretty great. Um also during a Oh, and those announcements that Gerald Wilson and Wiseman were all leaving the cast, that was all made in July 2014, right during the midst of Comic-Con. So that kind of put a damper on things. Was that as as Wright exited? Uh, yes. So this was not a, a positive time for, uh, for the development of Ant-Man. For the role of Hope Van Dyne, Evangeline Lilly was cast, as I had mentioned, but there were also some actresses that were being eyed for this role as well. 
uh, Wright was apparently looking at Bryce Dallas Howard for the role. However, uh, it's likely that she wasn't able to commit due to Jurassic World filming. Uh, Jessica Chastain was offered the role. She was offered, uh, also offered the role for Maya Hansen in Iron Man 3, but turned both of these down. Um, but it's okay, guys. She was in Dark Phoenix, so, you know, she, <laughs> she was able to make her way into comic book films. Uh, and lastly, Rashida Jones is also rumored uh, for the role. And I feel like most of those could have worked, though I'm a big Evangeline Lilly fan, so I'm, I'm happy with the way it went. Um, as we mentioned, Stoll was uh, revealed to be cast as Darren Cross, a.k.a. Yellow Jacket, which, is, which got a lot of confusion because that was a, um, a name sometimes kind of given to Hank Pym during his stint as Ant-Man. So just a, a weird bit of name borrowing there. Pena ended up getting cast as Lewis. <laughs> There's, he's got really funny uh, interviews about the role. Really, most interviews with Pena is pretty great. But he's talking about the uh, the vocal style of Luis, and he said he modeled the style and just overall positive outlook on life as on a friend of a friend, saying, that's just the way he talks and the cadence. He's got this grin on the entire time, and he doesn't care. He's the kind of guy where you're like, hey, what'd you do this weekend? And he's like, I went to jail, dog, with a smile on his face. <laughs> Not a lot of people do that. Not a lot of people think of life on those terms. Uh, and I I love that scene in the beginning where he's talking to Scott and he's like, my mom died, my dad got deported, but hey, I got the van. <laughs> it's one of the better MCU side characters. Uh, Pena actually has a three-film contract, so I'm hoping we get to see him for a third time. Ant-Man 3 better be happening. Oh, I hope so. I'm betting it will. Uh, Tip T.I. Harris uh, was cast as Dave, uh, one of the three friends who joins him. Uh, Judy Greer, which many people will likely know her from Arrested Development, uh, was hired as Maggie. Uh, I'm going to try to pronounce this name correctly. David Dasmalchian as Kurt. Uh, he, uh, he's an American who worked with actress Isadora Gorister to learn how to speak in his character's Russian accent. Uh, and he actually... Uh, he created this whole entire backstory for his character. Where he, he had this idea that Kurt was born and raised in a town even further out than Siberia, and he was just an amazing computer wizard who fell in with the wrong people. But he was obsessed with two things, Saturday Night Fever and Elvis Presley. Hence the polyester shirts unbuttoned too far and the hair in that pompadour. I'll take it. Yeah, hey, it's memorable. Yeah. I love when actors uh, get that invested in their, in their roles. <laughs> it just makes it that much better. Uh, for the role of, uh, of his adorable daughter, uh, that went to I Abby Ryder Fortson. Uh, and then in addition to the main cast, there's like all of these MCU films, uh, a bunch of cameos, uh, Anthony Mackie returns as a Falcon and, uh, Reed said that it was not just done to include the character, but rather it served a plot point, a purpose in our story. Uh, and it, he said it allowed them to enhance Pena's little tip montages. Uh, he said also adding Falcon seemed like the right character, not a marquee character like Iron Man or Thor, but the right level of hero. Um, for that opening scene, John Slattery and Haley Atwell reprised their roles as Howard Stark and Peggy Carter, respectively. Uh, Greg Turkington appears as Dale, the manager of Baskin Robbins. He's a comedian. Uh, and he's pretty great here. Uh, Martin Donovan plays Mitchell Carson, former member of S.H.I.E.L.D. who also works for HYDRA. Uh, YouTuber Anna 
Anna Akina portrays a writer in Luis's story at the end. Um, Garrett Morris, uh, he's he played Ant-Man in a Saturday Night Live sketch, and apparently he was funny enough to warrant uh, a cameo here where he appears as a taxi driver. Um, Stanley obviously gets in his cameo as a bartender at the very end. Crazy stupid fine. Crazy. Pretty great. Yeah, his delivery I'm sure would have been great too. Uh, Haley Lovett actually makes a non-speaking cameo as Janet Van Dyne. And it's funny, Lovett was cast for what was described as her saucer-like Michelle Pfeiffer eyes <laughs> because Peyton Reed's dream was to cast Michelle Pfeiffer, um, but they weren't able to reach out yet. Uh, and lastly, Tom Kenny, the very voice of SpongeBob, voices the toy rabbit that Scott gives to Cassie. <laughs> okay. Um. So now getting into the whole controversy and firing of Edgar Wright and all that. So in early 2014, as the spring shoot date was rapidly approaching, uh, Marvel began to express concerns about Wright Wright's and Cornish's current script. Just weeks away from principal photography, Feige ordered rewrites uh, from several writers without input from Wright uh, or Cornish. And then upon receiving the updated script, uh, Wright opted to drop out of the production rather than go forward with the film that Marvel wanted to make. Uh, and here's some quotes from Feige and from our right on this. So from Feige first, he said, we sat around a table and realized it was not working. A part of me wishes we could have figured it out. We could have figured that out in the eight days we were working on it, but better for us and for Edgar that we figure it out then and not move through production. The Marvel movies are very collaborative and I think they're more collab- collaborative than what he wanted than what he was used to and I totally respect that. And then from Wright in an interview I think several years later he said I wanted to I wanted to make a Marvel movie but I don't think they really wanted to make an Ed- Edgar Wright movie. Um and then another quote from a different interview he said suddenly becoming a director for hire on it you're sort of less emotionally invested and you start to wonder why you're really there. And looking at this final project, the, the product is kind of odd. Like from what I, from what I hear, the main point of contention was simply, you know, adding in more connections to the MCU, which is crazy because this might be the least connected MCU film out of all of them. Maybe the Incredible Hulk, but like you count it, there are what like four, maybe there are like three scenes and like one or two throwaway lines that connected to the MCU. Like it really doesn't affect anything major it's odd that he would have made you know so much of a fuss about it yeah because i I kind of thought of that too because you know when i when i watched the film you know there's there's small little things like you know peggy carter you know and whatever but it's like nothing the only thing that i felt that really affected the film was pretty much falcon that was the only thing that was like a blatant in your face cameo i mean everything else i thought flowed with the story really well and didn't add didn't necessarily add or take away that much Mm -hmm. it's also weird considering like you know, as he said, this was essentially this movie was only there to facilitate a working relationship with Wright. Like, if he didn't express interest with it, Ant Man might never have happened. So I just I find it super ironic that the entire reason that this seemed to have been made as quickly, you know, twelve it's the twelfth movie in, and there are sequels too. So it's like not even the twelfth character, probably like the eighth or or whichever. Um, you know, and, and it's Ant-Man. So the fact that he got to show up this soon was mainly because of Wright. So to, to end up making it without him is is just odd to me. Yeah. Um. So production was then shut down for three months as the studio searched for a new director. The guy they really wanted was Adam McKay, uh, but he opted he opted out of directing but stayed on to help write the film. 
Uh, reportedly, other directors they were looking at were uh, Ross and Marshall Thurber of the two recent rock fi- or two, you know, the Central Intelligence and uh, what's the other one he did? Skyscraper. And also Ruben Fleischer. Um, I'm kind of glad neither of those happened. I mean, I don't really have a problem with either of those guys, but I think the, the guy they eventually got, Peyton Reed, was was kind of the perfect fit. Hearing that the director of Bring It On and uh, you know Yes Man was making a superhero film sounded weird at the time, but actually looking at the, his history, it kind of makes sense. Um, he was one of several directors hired to make Fantastic Four in the uh, mid 2000s, and he, you know, that would have been under Avi Arad, and Feige would have been there as well. He worked on that for a, a full year before dropping out due to create, creative differences with Sony. That's not Sony, right? Well, who's that? That's Fox. Right. Yeah, Fox. Fox. Or, and then. Um, he was also uh, one of the directors tapped to pitch for Guardians of the Galaxy, so obviously uh, Feige had his eye on him. Um, so McKay and Paul Rudd began to rewrite the script uh, with Reed you know, now running the show. Uh, here's a quote from Adam McKay. He said, The two of us holed up in a, in a hotel rooms on the East and West Coast. I think it was like six to eight weeks. We just ground out, grounded out and did a giant rewrite of the script. I was really proud of what we did. I really thought we put some amazing stuff in there and built on an already strong script from Edgar Wright and sort of just enhance some stuff. And then uh, from Paul Rudd kind of explaining the differences between his and, and uh, Joe's and, uh, and uh, Edgar and Joe's script, he said, the idea, the trajectory, the goal, and the and the blueprint of it all is really Edgar and Joe. It's their story. We changed some scenes, added, added new sequences. We changed some characters. We added new characters. If you took the two scripts and held them together, it'd be very different, but all the ideas are all theirs. And listening to, to uh, various interviews with uh, Peyton Reed, uh, seemed like the, the main changes they made were they, they deepened Hank Pym as a character. That included adding all the stuff about Janet Van Dyme and the quantum realm. All of that's from them. And they also they also really built up the father-child dynamics that kind of center – that are pretty much the heart of the movie. Um, they also added all the – pretty much all the references to the larger MCU, such as the scene with Falcon. Um, and funnily enough, like the one single piece of this film that I would swear to you is an Edgar Wright thing, which is the tip montages with uh, with Michael Pena. Those were actually from uh, Chris McKay. Those are uh, from Adam McKay. So hmm. you kind of, you kind of wonder like what what is from him in this movie? Yeah, that's weird. Like especially considering like I really like like the father father daughter uh, stuff that you see in both Hank and uh, and Scott. And I like Hank a lot as a character. And so you know if that didn't come from. I wonder what that ended up replacing. You know what. What was the heart of the of the story that Wright was trying to tell? Yeah. Also during the, this time, uh, Gabriel Ferrari and Andrew Barr uh, they came on and did some help with the writing. I'm not sure what they, what all they did. Also, Eric Pearson, who's the writer of most of the one shots, also contributed to the script. The final credited writers for the film are a story by Wright and Cornish and screenplay by Wright, Cornish, McKay, and Rudd. Um, so filming began in August of 2014 in San Francisco under the working title Bigfoot. I uh, then moved to Pinewood Atlanta Studios in Georgia, where the majority of the film was shot. Uh, Bill Pope was the originally uh, was the was the director of photography originally hired by Wright. Uh, he's behind such films as Spider-Man Two and Three and The Matrix, but then he left when uh, Wright came on. So they uh, so they brought on James Cameron's uh, DP Russell Carpenter as cinematographer. Uh, they made the choice the choice to shoot the film in one. 1.85 by one aspect ratio, which is the same aspect ratio as the Avengers instead of the standard uh, 2.39 by one aspect ratio, which is, you know, the normal widescreen we see on most blockbusters. Uh, this was done to allow more, more vertical space in the frame to really appreciate the shrinking effect and, you know, the massive size differences between Ant-Man and the environments. 
they had a macro photography unit running alongside the main unit to get you know all the ant-sized perspectives for all the uh, the shrinking sequences. Uh, when it came to post-production, it's weird. There was a an opening sequence that was essentially, com- or not essentially, it was completely cut from the movie. Uh, after the completion of principal photography, uh, they released an updated synopsis revealing that a uh, Jordi Mala was included in the cast, and uh, as well as the names of several supporting characters. Uh, however, he ended up not appearing at all in the theatrical lease of, release of the film. Director Peyton Reed said uh, that in the film's original opening, uh, which was filmed and cut completely in the editing process, uh, featured a standalone sequence that was really similar to uh, a James Bond film, where an unseen Pym uh, attempts to retrieve some microfilm from Molly's character, Castillo. Uh, who is a Panama Army general? I'm guessing that's where they got a lot of like that old war footage from that we see in the movie. Uh, he said the scene was meant to show Ant-Man's power without really seeing him, like an Invisible Man sequence, uh, and it's really really cool. But it started to feel totally tonally disconnected from the movie we're making and story-wise, and it was also kind of like it set a standalone adventure, but it just didn't connect to the rest of our story. It felt like a vestige of those earlier drafts by Wright and Cornish which was a standalone thing, was really cool, but not what we were doing. Um, Like most of the MCU films, there were a lot of different VFX studios involved, ILM, Lola, Double Negative, um, a lot of different people touching uh, touching individual scenes. Um, One of the big VFX things to note here was, uh, obviously we had the flashback sequence in 1989, uh, where we see the de-aged Douglas and Donovan uh, alongside Atwell as uh, Agent Carter, uh, who is actually in makeup, though, uh, as well as John Slattery's Howard Stark, who just showed up <laughs> as himself with gray or with white hair. What does he not really have white hair? Well, have you ever seen him without it? Oh well, uh, I guess now I'm just thinking about him in uh, Iron Man Two, assuming that that was his natural hair color. <laughs> uh, but pro- yeah, you're probably right. Uh, to de-age Douglas, Lola VFX uh, actually used a very similar process and technology that was used to uh, make Steve Rogers skinny in The First Avenger uh, and to make Agent Carter older in The Winter Soldier. Um, and they also used a lot of references from his uh, late 80s films. He's got a couple of those. Yeah, you know, he was in a, a few bigger movies. When it came to score it, uh, originally Stephen Price was set to score the film. However, he left soon after Wright's departure in 2014. So in 2015, uh, Christoph Beck, who worked with Reed on Bring It On, was hired to replace Price. Uh, And describing the film's score, he said, For Ant-Man, I wanted to write a score in the grand symphonic tradition of my favorite superhero movies with a sweeping scope and a big, catchy main theme. What makes this score stand out among other Marvel movies, though, is a sneaky sense of fun, since it is, is, after all, not only a superhero movie, but also a heist comedy. Um, When it came to marketing, they did a lot of fun things, like the... The mini posters with him standing on the shield and standing on Mjolnir, and they released like the little teasers, but it was ant size and you couldn't really see it. And you had to wait for them to, <laughs> to release it regular. Um, and then it was it had its premiere at the Dolby Theater on June 29th, 2015, and then opened worldwide um, in on July 17th, 2015. You forgot the greatest piece of film marketing, with, which is just uh, Paul Rudd and Michael Douglas slapping their thighs, going ants. Ants. Oh, yeah. Ant-Man. <laughs> the weirdest piece of marketing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That uh, happened. 
All right. Uh, so now that that's all out of the way, uh, we'll start with you first, Byron. Uh, do you remember your first time seeing this film and what has your relationship with it been like over the last few years? You know, it's I've had a weird relationship with this film, honestly, because when it first uh, came out, um, I kind of, you know, I I was experiencing a bit of a breakup with the MCU at the time. Um, Wait, y'all, there were, I didn't know y'all were ever together. Yeah, <laughs> I ended up like, you know, I was a huge fan of phase one. I really loved almost every film uh, within there in varying degrees, was not a huge fan of Age of Ultron. Um, while I loved Ga- Guardians of the Galaxy, um, I was a little concerned that the humorous aspect might, you know, bleed over to other films a little too much. Um, so I was I was a little nervous um, with Ant-Man and ironically enough, a lot of my nervousness was that. Um, when I'd heard about Edgar Wright wanting it to be more disconnected from the MCU, I was nervous about that because I wanted it more connected at that point. Um, and so just kind of with all the production problems, everything, when I first went and saw it, you know, I w- really wasn't sure what I was going to be seeing basically. And I wasn't sure if I was going to like it or not. Um, surprisingly enough, I actually really, really liked it the first time I saw it. I thought the humor flowed really, really well. Um, And it was actually kind of one of the, and I still say almost for all of the MCU films that I've seen, I feel like the humor was the most natural and it flowed throughout the film more so than a lot of other MCU films do. Um, And I really, I was a big fan of a lot of the characters and a lot of the actors that appeared in it. Um, I'm a big uh, Evangeline Lilly fan from Lost. Who isn't? (laughs) True. Bring them here and have them shot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, I really like Michael Douglas as well. So I was really happy at his casting. Um, but just overall, I was surprised at just how much fun I had really in the movie. Um, it kind of felt like one of those, uh, you call them like the Saturday matinees, you know, that it was just, it was breezy, light. Um, and actually, kind of what James said earlier was interesting um, when he was uh, talking about the Marvel one shots. And I believe he said one of the writers of the one shots was involved. Um, unless I'm Eric Pearson. Yes. Uh huh. That I, I feel like almost Ant-Man as itself feels like a large, yeah, huge, no pun intended, um, <laughs> one shot basically. Cause you know, it is rather disconnected from the MCU and stuff. And it just feels like it's kind of its own thing. Um, but just, I really liked it, but at the same time, you know, it wasn't super high on my rankings of MCU films. I just really just enjoyed it for what it was. As the years have gone by and I've rewatched it a few times, it's kind of been steadily getting higher and higher on my list. And I've been enjoying it more and more. Um, just the characters, the comedy, the script, uh, the story, I've just been really enjoying it. So actually right now it's one of my, uh, one of my favorite MCU films right now. <laughs> That's why you're here. And what about you, James? Yeah. So I remember the going into it, um, I think Guardians of the Galaxy's success kind of kept me from having any sort of reservations that might have existed first. So I don't know that I went into this with any real sense of uh, of hesitation, and I wasn't even quite like as a uh, as aware of a lot of the uh, the troubled productions. This was kind of before I realized how much of an Edgar Wright fan I was. So you know, just the uh, the shock of losing him and and Joe Cornish wasn't really something that tracked with me too much so whenever i first saw the trailer i was like you know this looks this looks like a lot of fun i just had a lot of fun with guardians so i went in expecting uh expecting at the very least just you know kind of a a breezy fun movie 
Uh, and I really liked it the first time I saw it. Uh, me and a couple of friends went after work. And, and one of my friends I know was a big fan of the character and he was really nervous that they were going to mess it up. And so afterwards, he he really loved it and got to sit down and listen to him talk about the character for a while. So I had a really positive experience with it. Um, over the the years since it's been released, um, I've maintained uh, a strong liking of it. I don't know if I've ever loved it the same way I did that first time, just because of just you know how how fun it was and that kind of what you said. It has that just really fun matinee, like we got nothing going on, let's just go out and have a good time at the theater kind of feeling. And it, it's a great theater movie. Um, but because of how breezy it is, uh, it's not always been one that's just in my mind. Like whenever I think MCU, it, it hasn't always just popped into my mind uh, as just this defining film the way several others, others have. So um, I really like it still. Uh, and I'd say, so after that first viewing, um, I didn't fall out of love with it by any means, but I just, I think after that, I, I just started to like it a lot. And that's kind of been where I've been since. Yeah. So I remember quite enjoying, I, th- I saw it two or three times, pretty sure I saw it three times in theaters and, you know, I, I was someone who actually you know, had a good, a very good time with Age of Ultron. I very much liked and respected that movie. And then, but going into this movie directly after Age of Ultron, it, you know, it's such a dramatic shift from that enormous bombast and self seriousness and the, just the the scope of that film to Ant Man. And I, I really appreciated the kind of palate cleanser that this movie was, and that that the the MCU could still give out these two wildly different movies in the same year, and. I just appreciate that it was just this nice little movie about a dad trying to get back with his little girl. Like there's, there's no, nothing world ending. There's no, there's no, no really tight, intricate plot. It's just, it's just such a simple story about nice people having fun. And I, I'm just, I'm glad movies like this could exist. And so, you know, moving into the main review, one thing I do want to talk about is that it, it's, I find it really impressive that Peyton Reed was able to kind of come in so late in the game and still really make this film his own because like if you watch all the interviews and and talking about all the things that sh- that changed like the main the main things that people walk out of this film remembering are very often you know fr- from Reed and, and you know Rod and McKay and like, the fact that he could come in you know not not being a big, big you know big film director just you know a guy who's made a couple small comedies and completely remake this film from the ground up and and able to get his vision out and you can tell it's his vision because when you look at Ant-Man and the Wasp, like it's the exact same tone, it's the exact same style. Like there's there's almost no shift between him coming on and finishing another man's project product, and then you know going on and making his own. And it's, it's just pretty. I kind of got to respect the guy for being able to come in and just do that. I guess it's similar to what, uh, or maybe a less extreme version to what Ron Howard had to do with Solo. That's actually a great example. <laughs> and then just just speaking of like the style of this film, I think that that's. There's not a lot of like visual style. Like I think, I think he he he. he it's a good looking movie. It's it's funny that this film, like even though it's the kind of the same full screen aspect ratio, I would say it looks even more cinematic than the Avengers does. Just like moment to moment, I think the, the compositions feel more traditional and like there's a much stronger color grade. 
and more stylish light. It just, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't fall into the trap that I think the Avengers did at times where that movie kind of looks like a TV movie. I think he's able to keep the movie looking very good, but it's all, most of the direction is pretty basic. But I, I, I just, I, I never feel like that takes, there's never a moment where I just feel like, oh, this looks like, this looks super cheap. Like he's, he's able to just kind of slip into the, the whole, just the, the blockbuster format fairly well while never like losing his own style. Yeah, because I feel like it with Ant-Man, in my opinion, at least, it has some of the best like costuming, I feel, and like super suits of like some of the MCU films, like just the Ant-Man suit, the yellow jacket suit. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just they're they're really good looking. They just they look great. You know, they they tonally they still fit with the rest of the universe, but like the way their colors pop. Yeah. You know, the yeah. way the helmets open, it just everything just it just flows really well. Yeah, there's, there's something very analog about, about the helmet and the fact that it's just two buttons, you know, right there for his thumbs. There's, there's something just so simple and cool. I, I just love the red in the suit. It's the, the, the suit would have been rights because you you see that in the uh in the old the old comic contest footage, just pretty much the same suit. Yeah, and this this movie, along with a lot of these other earlier ones, reminds me of something that I really love about like this first half. It's not completely absent in the second half, um, but we do kind of shift away from, which is just a sense of like practicality in the suits. Like you said, it's just like it's these buttons on his hands. It's this helmet that clearly looks like it fits together and it clicks and everything. Like it is, it feels tangible and, and tactile. Like like it's there and you can you can see the the mesh and the the you know just all of the material. It is really really cool designs. Uh, and about the the ratio being the same as the Avengers, it is weird because maybe it's just because I've I've always been such a big fan of the Avengers and. Even when I rewatched, I feel like I returned to the headspace of, you know, that I was when it came out in 2012, where I, I cared a lot less about like the technical aspects of a movie. It wasn't until like the, the ratio was pointed out to me that I kind of noticed the, uh, the more TV-esque visuals of, of just some of like the, the dialogue scenes. But, but here, despite it, yeah, this, this feels more intentional, I guess I'd say, or intentionally cinematic, um, even in just you know a handful of people standing in a room, it it doesn't feel like uh, the I guess less kind of coordinated TV kind of direction that you you'd expect. So uh, yeah, it's not. I, I don't think it's amazingly directed by any means. Uh, but one thing that I I will give it credit for is that it seems like he just becomes not a new director, but it's like. He's he gets so much more energy and excitement when he when he shrinks the suit, like he does really cool things with uh with the camera, the way he plays with perspective and and he, he moves the camera around a lot, uh like just kind of picking hit like Scott as the focal point and spinning the camera around a bit, um so I think he actually infuses some of the action with with a lot more excitement than you'd expect if you just watch the the I guess scenes that happen in between these little bits of action yeah the, i've heard people say that like a lot of the action was prevised by edgar wright and i'm inclined to partially believe that because like that that i keep going back to that test that test footage the comic-con test footage because like that thing where he's he goes he shrinks and runs along the barrel of the gun and then grabs the guy by the tie and throws him through a window like that's that that's that's the sequence from the test footage, and it, it it's also used again within the film. Um, 
and that makes sense. Like that, that very dynamic visual style that is used in the shrinking. And it does make sense that a lot of like that, the, 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 the fighting style, the visual palette of, of, of the, the shrunken world, it wouldn't surprise me if most of that was pretty much laid out by Edgar Wright, but, but also again, going to like Ant-Man of the Wasp, the fact that he's able to so seamlessly continue that vision, you know, def- definitely says a lot for, for whatever he brought to it as well. Yeah. And, uh, I just I really like the the way that they presented the world when he shrinks. Um, maybe it's it's been a bit since I've seen Ant-Man and the Wasp. I don't remember really getting to enjoy it quite the same way in that here. There's just like the bathtub scene. You never picture it like looking like that. And maybe that's just because my idea of like movies about people who shrink is almost entirely determined by honey i shrunk the kids <laughs> but really you know it's just people in a in a set designed to make them look super tiny but just that kind of like fish eye movement of the camera and everything and that extra sense of weight given to stuff and and uh the way he plays with like uh with pre- um foreground and background and stuff it's just, it's really really cool and i wonder if if that whole visual language was kind of set before he came on board, because I feel like it it would have to. But regardless of, of who it came from, uh, I just think it's cool that Ant-Man kind of has that that visual look to it that's very specific to it. Kind of how, you know, Iron Man essentially invented that, like, camera on the face in the suit. Like, we see that and we know what it is. I, I have kind of similar feelings. It's just the way the the world is presented here when you shrink. That it's just it feels very specific to this movie's visual language. Yeah, the, that that macro photography look where like the, the the focus almost feels like it's kind of shimmering in and out. It's 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 an odd look that almost like even when you I know elements that are live action, like there's so much detail you almost feel like it's a, a CGI thing. It's 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 a very unique look that I, I very much like. Um, Byron, so what, what do you think of the casting of Paul Rudd as the lead here? Uh, it's kind of a, something that really caught people off guard at first. You know, it really kind of caught me off guard at first as well, because, you know, I will confess I hadn't seen a lot of films with him before this. Um, you know, I had seen some movies, uh, but I wouldn't describe myself as, as you know, a Paul Rudd fan going into Ant-Man. Um one thing that did strike me as soon as I did hear his casting was I, I I was familiar with his work in comedy. And so I did feel that this kind of cemented, like I always knew Ant-Man was going to be a comedy, but I felt this cemented a little bit more. We've gotten a comedic actor to be in the lead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that being said, I felt, uh, I thought he had the look for it. Um, you know, and kind of when, when I imagined him, you know, and saw some of the concept art and stuff, um, or not the concept art, the, um, like the fan art and stuff, I was like, okay, I can, I can see, I can see this character, you know, I can see him playing Ant-Man. And so I, I wouldn't say I was opposed to it in the beginning at all. Um, you know, and, you know, I felt it went along with the tone of it. And then when I saw him in the role, you know, I, I was very impressed. I thought he did a great job. You know, um, he, you know, as an actor, I do feel he is able to balance some of that, the seriousness as well as comedic elements. And he can kind of pop between both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kind of like also that he has a, um, like a kind of a dry sense of humor, a droll, sarcastic humor that he's never necessarily, especially in Ant Man, he's never like the slapstick funny guy. He's he's more you know making the comments to people, 
you know, making the the sarcastic, uh, witty banter. And that was something that I liked that I thought he brought to the role very well. Yeah, he's he's probably the most everyman like le- leading character we've gotten in the MCU. Like, I love that he never he never feels like he's completely gotten over the fact that he's here. He, he's just kind of like it almost always like mildly bemused, but just like too tired to make a fuss about it. And it's, it's just something that's so funny. I love how you mentioned he's, he's just so dry and he just, he just goes with it, but he's always just kind of looking at everything a little funny and weird. Um, yeah, he's, he's, he's just, he's just fun. Like this, this isn't a, this isn't really a dramatic role. I think he, he handles the couple of dramatic moments, mostly surrounding his daughter, very capably. But, and I almost like that 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 is not a dramatic role because it does offer that an, another side of the MCU where most of the heroes are tortured or, you know, they're all big and bombastic. He's just he's just a regular guy that should not be here that just just happened to you know, stumble across an opportunity and here he is and, you know, he's gonna kind of have fun with it. Yeah, one of the things that I think really helps with the performance is is the humor is kind of like what y'all are saying. It's very specific to him and his, his dry kind of delivery. There's even just something about like the tone of his voice when he, when he gives his like comedic lines, it feels very, okay, that's, that's Paul Rudd. Definitely. Like you don't really mistake it for other people. And I think one of the things that that does is that when, when this movie uses him for humor, it doesn't feel like you could just substitute, you know, like typical Hollywood blockbuster humor inserted here delivered in the same way that these kind of comedic lines would be given by everybody else because it's like so specific to him it feels like it's specific to an individual like an individual um not the kind of like stock you know action hero who's going to quit that you might get from other blockbusters so which makes sense considering you know he he wrote it and mckay who he's worked with a lot also you know co-wrote it so it, it was literally Read from him from Edgar Wright to McKay to Rudd. It was all, you know, completely his voice. Yeah. And so I think you get that. It feels, the humor feels very natural to him. Like this is something that this guy would say uh, because, you know, in, in a lot of ways he kind of is playing Paul Rudd, which I think really works out here because Paul Rudd is also just a joy to watch in interviews. So, um, it seemed like they were really able to make the best possible use of, of the guy they got. Yeah. I think that this film has a deceptively intelligent script. Like when you just watch, you just kind of going along and having fun with it because it's such an easygoing movie, but you actually like get down to it and think about the themes, you know, the motivating factor for, uh, for Scott Lang is to, you know, to get back with his daughter, you know, to solve some mistakes that he made with his family and then that, that that expands with you know H- Hank is you know his major conflict is you know with his daughter Hope, and then that even goes into the villain where, you know we have that kind of surrogate father mentor mentee relationship that that was broken where you know Hank is you know struggling through various broken relationships like the whole film, like all, all the various conflicts throughout the film are 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 centered around that kind of parent child dynamic and these broken relationships. Yeah, he even, you know, refers to him as like, maybe I saw him as the son I never had. Yeah. So, so how, how do you guys feel about that, that entire that entire dynamic that kind of surrounds all the conflicts in this film? 
That was something that I liked about it. I, I thought it added some heart, you know, to the movie. It added some emotional weight to it. And it was actually one interesting thing was, uh, you know, because I, I agree with you guys when you said it was a little a little weird that Yellow Jacket was the villain when it was also kind of the mantle of, uh, of Hank Pym uh, in the comics. But I almost thought it kind of worked really well um, because uh, with uh, Carrie Stoll's character, um, Corey Stoll's character, it, I thought it worked because you know, he was taking on something from his like father figure from his mentor and he was making it his own because he was trying to live up to his mentors. And, and there's even that line where, where, uh, where, uh, Darren asked him like, why did you take me? And he said, because I saw myself. And then why did you push me away? Because I saw too much of myself. <laughs> I love that line. I really love that quote. <laughs> I, I liked it a lot as well. Um, my favorite part of this film is, uh, is also my favorite part of Ant-Man and the Wasp, which is just the the relationship between uh, Scott and Cassie. The most um, adorable girl in the history of cinema. <laughs> she is incredibly She's adorable. She's so happy to see you. She choked on her drink. <laughs> <laughs> He's so ugly. I love him. Uh, <laughs> she's the best. Um, but And it kind of goes to what you were saying with Scott as the everyman. Just, you know, every, all of these other heroes are fighting for the survival of the world and, you know, this and that. There's always these huge consequences. And despite the fact that there are, like, consequences to um, the the Pym particles getting out, especially to, to Hydra, like, there are consequences, but for Scott, it firmly rests on, on him trying to maintain that this relationship with his daughter that's already, you know, kind of on, on rocky ground given his... Uh, in his incarceration, you know, for so long, he just, he hasn't been in our life. And so a lot of times, you know, with, I would say more often than not, when you, when you make the stakes personal, as opposed to just like big picture, got to save the world stuff, it, it gets more emotional investment out of the audience. Um, I, I, it's, it's a weird, it's weird to me because in some ways I do wish they kind of pushed it further. I think we get some really great, um, emotional scenes one of my favorite lines and this is probably my favorite line delivery of the entire movie is whenever hank says you know i lost your mother i didn't mean to lose you too like he just sounds Mm -hmm. like this heartbroken old father who is like coming to grips with what he allowed his heartbreak to do to like the one relationship that he had it's just it's delivered with an incredible amount of conviction and sincerity uh, and a weird amount of vulnerability. Like he just, it sounds like he's just, you know, he's, he's been bottling this up. He won't tell her about the death. He won't, he won't let her in the suit. And he's putting on this kind of hard edge that you don't really get a lot of insight into his, into his mind. And for that one moment, it's like, he just opens himself up completely and is on the verge of tears. Um, So when we go there, I really like that. I just I almost wish that because the uh, like the external consequence of like you know the pim particles getting out and this and that because it's more just kind of tangential uh, and it does mostly rest on these personal stakes I I wish that it it hit maybe a bit harder but I also don't know how you balance that with the the more comedic uh, side of the film I actually ha- have a theory about the uh, the climax like rewriting the climax that we'll probably get into later. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Michael Douglas as Hank Pym because, like, I think that is actually a really great performance. Just like from the, the surface, where he's playing this kind of grumpy, ever so slightly superior kind of 
you know, scientist who just like he he knows he's smarter than everyone else, and he kind like he does, he's not like completely rude, but you can just see that in the performance and the way he treats other people. Just he's kind of like always slightly talking down to Scott, which is just kind of funny with the, with the way they have their interplay. Um, but as it goes deeper and the moments where he really is forced to open up, and there's something I really like the fact that he thinks he's completely lost hope and him choosing Scott Lang is in a way you're try, trying to find some redemption for himself, you know, and you know, completely screwing up his family and losing his daughter. He sees another man who's kind of like on the precipice of having the same thing happen to him. And so he's kind of, kind of like investing in Scott and pouring himself into Scott to try and maybe, maybe he can heal that. Like he lost his family. Maybe he can heal that family. And, and there's that, there's that really beautiful line um, after, Hope storms out and us and he's talking to Scott. And he says, before she lost her mother, she would look at me like I was the greatest man in the world. Now she just look, looks at me and it's just disappointment. It's too late for me, but not for you. This is your chance to earn that look in your daughter's eyes to become the hero. She already thinks you are. It's not about saving our world. It's about saving hers. And just the way that he's, he, he sees, he sees himself and Scott is like, try, now he, now he's trying to make sure that Scott's relationship with his daughter is able to, you know, to be saved so that he can you know, vicariously have some kind of redemption through that. And that's what convinces, like that's what helps his acceptance of being Ant-Man a lot more uh, believable to me because that's that's just a refrain for him. He's already heard this. It's almost the same thing he's told uh, by Drew, uh, Judy Greer's character where she says, you know, uh, be the person she already thinks you are. Like this is, this is what's driving him right now is this idea that, his daughter clearly loves him. And that's not something that he questions. But, you know, he's questioning if that's something that he can maintain. And so to be confronted with somebody completely external to that situation saying the same thing, I think that's what makes this, like, you know, this acceptance of this role. Like, yeah, that's exactly what he would do. Any thoughts on that, Byron? No, I actually really agree. Like, you know, going back a little bit to the what James was saying about like, you know, not having like the world ending stakes necessarily, you know, having like a smaller focused film. That was one thing I really liked about it in that basically, you know, that in a way there was world ending stakes in Ant-Man, but it wasn't really the fate of the world. It was the fate of Scott's world. You know, that basically his daughter and her love and the way she viewed him was his world. It was all he was living for. It yeah. was all he cared about. The whole and, movie's <laughs> about visitation rights. Exactly. Exactly. Uh-huh. You know, and so it's like basically if he fails, then basically the the world does end for him. You know, it's like his world does end. And so there are super high stakes in that. And I just loved how they kind of like turned it on its end. And also like, you know, um, going off a tiny bit on a rabbit trail, I, I really liked kind of the whole like, you know, father's rights type thing they were throwing in. You know, because like so many times you you know you see like you know deadbeat dads or whatever you know in films that I I liked seeing a father who was you know invested who cared about his kid who was really fighting to be involved in their life because you don't see that as often as I would like yeah, the the plight of ex cons like you know, ba- Baskin Robbins always finds out which is the greatest line ever. I love that whole sequence <laughs> like you know I've got a master's in ma- you know in whatever electrical engineer I'll find a job welcome to Baskin Robbins <laughs> he's got the, the pink T shirt. And I love like his manager like feel free to grab a smoothie on the way out. <laughs> like, yeah. Dude, Basket Robbins always finds out. Basket Robbins don't play. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't really, that's a thing that's known in the XCON community. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh. that, that's a good segue into um into I guess Scott Lang's criminal gang. <laughs> what do you think about uh, as uh, as Michael Douglas puts it, those wombats? <laughs> Oh, I, I loved him. Honestly, I really loved the side characters in this film, but I just I I loved Michael Pena's character. He was just he was the perfect sidekick, basically, in my opinion, um, you know, and and I also kind of liked the I don't know, I kind of liked the the trope almost of like kind of like the family that they had, you know, of like being friends and such. And and I was kind of like, you know, I was impressed a little bit with like, you know, T.I. He's kind of a. He's, you know, experimented with acting a little bit, but I thought he did like a good job in this film. Um, and I just I love the banter between them all. I, I think that uh, like um, I love um, the one uh, I love the one line with uh, T.I.'s character where uh, he's talking about, you know, their accomplishment of robbing Hank Pym. And Pym is like, well, I let you. And he's like, well, I let you let me. You know, it was like it was just, it was there was great banter between them all. Yeah, I I really really love uh, Pena specifically in this. Um, I think he he's the most well he and uh, Rudd are like the most effortlessly comedic. Um, where it's just it doesn't feel like it's like a show being put on. It seems like you know as he put it, he, this is like him mimicking a friend of a friend. It seems it seems like we're seeing that friend of a friend here. You know, like this is a <laughs> real guy, and this is his attitude, and this is his outlook on life. And it's you know every everything to him can get a positive spin, and you know he's he's down for kind of whatever's happening. Um, and his delivery is just so perfect. Like I, I do have an issue every now and then with this film's comedy and it's it's not even specific to this film it's just i think it's a brand of comedy that you do see a lot in like big blockbuster action which is like the event happens the film pauses like just pauses and points at a character for like a few seconds and then they deliver their comedic line and then you give time to laugh and then you move on that's never been just like a a kind of punchline that's that's worked for me and, and that happens a few times with you know like that's a messed up looking dog and, and stuff like that which aren't you know terrible lines they're they're fine but it's that kind of stuff isn't you know when the tank falls out and he's like and a tank like they're 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 fine enough but it's it's Pena's delivery on a lot of this stuff that doesn't it doesn't feel like you know you look in the script and you see like and then we pause for the line delivery and the laughter and then we move on it's just like he's so in the moment that you don't even have time for that and one of my like one of the lines that just gets me for whatever reason uh, almost the most of any of them is whenever he's being yelled, like, get out of that van. And he's like, it's too loud, there's a tank, I can't hear you. And he's like, gets in the <laughs> car and drives off. I was about to say that one. That was, yeah, it's just the way he says it is so good. And it's so quick and in the moment. It's just every line from him just feels like it's this complete outworking of who this guy is. Like, I mean, this is, a, this is, a... <laughs> yeah, like he's just got this kind of like, lovable excitement about everything and uh or like one of the best endings ever he said yes and just kind of like <laughs> stared him for a bit it's i don't know there's everything about him I, so i like the two other guys i think they're they're fine any sort of my complaints aren't really on them as actors it's just i think sometimes they're given the stereotypical kind of like insert audience laughter here stuff um but i i still think they do well in their roles 
but uh yeah it's, it's michael pena's series uh or specifically that that i i really like a lot I like the Russian guy. <laughs> like after uh, Pena goes through his entire montage, and I was like, "What? Old man, have sif? <laughs> like, this is the work of gypsies. <laughs> it did not kill the old lady. She still throws jewel in the ocean." Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I did like that line a yeah, lot. It's like they're all, they're all fun together. Um, I really yeah, feel it, like I really feel like Marvel missed a golden opportunity because I know a lot of people were requesting it online of having Michael Pena um, as his character do a recap of the MCU. Up yes. to game. I really think they missed a golden opportunity for that. And speaking of those montages, like just, they're so freaking brilliant and the way they're filmed with like the, the slightly sped up photography and everybody lip syncing to I love like they have to fast forward the people so that they can li- properly lip sync to just how fast Michael Pena is talking. It's so good. Um, I also love that he's kind of a connoisseur of the arts. You're like, I'm at this art museum with my cousin Ignacio, right? And this abstract expressionism going on. But you know me, I'm a, more of a neo-cubist kind of guy. It's like, <laughs> it's just like these things, they, they, they just run through them and they're just, they're so funny. And like, I, I'm, and I'm glad that they don't overplay it. They, they only have two of the movie that like, they, they could have so easily overplayed that gag, but it's just enough to where everyone walks in that theater, you're talking about Michael Pena and how much they love those montages. And it's like that's that's how you do exposition too, you know. Like you find, you find your way to deliver it, where it's like nobody, you n- nobody cares because it's it's also it's, you know, exposition itself isn't inherently bad. It is kind of how you dress it up and and to to be so stylish and upfront and and funny and quirky with your delivery of this kind of information. It's like this is how you do it right here. I agree because so many films sometimes fall into the trap of ex- of like over over exposition or just making it like really boring like oh it's time for the villain you know exposition of his plan or whatever you know so it's like I think that like you said it's how you dress it up and this film really dressed it up in a very creative way almost kind of like turning it on its head by instead of trying to hide the exposition they just <laughs> let's, let's create a sequence completely around the concept of giving you the information yeah but all it's too too much information. Like you normally with exposition, you're trying to cut away all the extraneous details so you can give you get it all in one line. But here, they're, they're just reveling the fact that they're just giving us way too much. And I'm moving on to another cast member. How do you guys feel about uh, Evangeline Lilly as uh, Hope Van Dyme? I'm a big fan of her um, as an actress. Um, you know, I loved her in Lost. And um, this is this is a slight rabbit trail, but I feel like she must have like one of the most amazing agents in Hollywood because she's only been in seven films since Lost. But like. Really? Six of, yeah, but six of those films have all been like blockbusters, hits, or iconic films. Like she has not been like in, Real Steel. Yeah, like, well, even yeah, <laughs> I loved Real Steel, but yeah, that was that was a mild hit, I would say. Um, but it wasn't a blockbuster. But it's like she was in like The Hobbit. She was in Avengers. She was in like you know, just like it was. I feel like she had to have had a great agent. But I liked her character. Um. I liked her character more in Ant-Man and the Wasp. I felt she was a little bit more developed in that one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel like, you know, the script <clears throat> in this film didn't give her as much to do as she could have, you know, because she kind of just had to be a little bit more of the side character and the daughter and a little bit of the love interest and such. Um, but I thought with the material that she was given, I thought she did a very good job of bringing the character to life. Um by the time the film concluded and we saw, you know, the um, the wasp outfit, I was very excited to see her suit up. You know, I was like, OK, I can't wait, you know, to see her as this character. 
Um, you know, so I think it did its job of introducing her, getting her into the role, you know. Um, but like I said, I think I would have liked to have seen a little bit more meteor um, plot line. Yeah, it really is Scott Lang and Hank Pym's movie. Like they're they're the guys who you know, are, are you know, trying to fix these relationships. And like she 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 kind of just followed that just like slight, you know, slightly grumpy highly capable female character that you know that you just see around especially with it with that haircut which i like i like they make fun of it in the next movie um but yeah like the, the couple of dramatic moments she does have with michael douglas i think she does quite well yeah i think she's really really good in the movie and i'm kind of offended that you insult that the half bob <laughs> that she's sporting because uh she pulls it off and oh, she does, but it. it's it's clearly speaks to her soul <laughs> where she is right now. Uh, honestly, for me, though, what, one of the positives that I had about her character, most of my positives are just about the performance because I think she's good. And I, I think the character is um, unfortunately underdeveloped. But one of the things that I was going to say that I did like about her is that I, I personally didn't feel like she fell under that that kind of category of I'm I'm just as tough as everybody else, because to me that. That attitude in a lot of these movies feel like a result from, I, I guess, just from, you know, cultural um, conversations and stuff like that. It it feels like you can't really trace it to a moment in the movie that, like, this is why the, this person is this way. I, I think that this kind of standoffish, I'm more capable than you kind of um, personality that she has is completely embedded in the story. Like she's she's been denied you know she lost this father figure and i think in in subtle ways likely just despite this outward appearance of of hating him she still i think you know longs for that kind of approval she wants to be i think she on the inside like wants that reconciliation and she wants to be given the chance to prove herself and to have this like rando off the street show up and wear the suit like there's a story reason for this anger that she shows towards him for most of the film. So I never felt like it, it she never felt cliche to me there just because of how rooted it was in, in her history within the story. Um, I do think the unfortunate thing about her character is she is just kind of used um, to give Scott someone to fall in love with and to give Hank like that kind of, she's the the crutch of his his emotional arc you know we need a face to his pain mm-hmm. and so it doesn't really feel like other people are used to support her as a character she's just kind of there to facilitate the needs of of the two people that the story is really about and and that's not always just you know that's not a bad thing movies by nature you have your leads and you have what are called supporting mm-hmm. casts it's just i think she was in it enough to justify being more than than somebody to support other characters, um, I think I think she should have been given a bit more um, of a dramatic arc as opposed to the hey you know the, he may be uh, you know he he may be hard on you but it's because he loves you it's like oh okay well then I'll help you train <laughs> like it's just it's that super quick turn and I, and I just wish there was more there you know because she's the, as a character she's got plenty to work through it's just. We kind of get through that in just a couple scenes. Yeah, I, I, I do like her interactions with Hank where she's like constantly just jabbing at him and just like you can tell this. She has a lot of anger towards him, but she's putting, you know, she's she's working with him for the greater good. But also it does feel like every little jab is this kind of cry for help 
you know, where humans are, you know, we're, we're, ba- we're bad at, we, we can be really bad at relationships where we do, you know, she wants that relationship, but she's angry at with him for leaving. So she just got, you know, expresses it through constantly jabbing at him, which I thought was pretty well done. And I think that's where the, like her really good performance is, is even more noticeable, especially like the first time we see them where they're like just a couple moments in our introduction to, to them together and their dynamic where we just kind of see her like tilt her head and glare at him <laughs> and, and, He'll say something and she'll kind of turn her head and look at it. It's just, there's a lot of like visual acting from her where she's not really giving lines. It's just, you can see, it's like you can see the history. Um, and it's it's that really, like to me, impressive kind of acting where it's it's an actor like playing a character who's putting on a show where like you've got to be convinced that this isn't Evangeline Lilly pretending to harbor these, like this feeling of anger. It's her pretending to be Hope Van Dyne, pretending mm-hmm. to like be putting on this show of like this kind of act, like we we can be in public together and not hate each other. Um, and then that almost even drops a little bit to where I think there's a lot of anger uh, in her towards her father. But I feel like also some of that is, is heightened to kind of maintain this distant dynamic. You know, if somebody were around, you know, nobody would assume that they were working together because you just see her and there's this cold demeanor. And I I think the reason she's able to play it realistically is because for the character, there are those like those feelings between each other where, you know, where she does kind of resent him. But it also feels a bit heightened, like it like it is this kind of show. And and as soon as everybody's gone, it's like, okay, yeah, he's closer than we thought. And it's kind of back to business stuff. So I, I think for what little is there, I think she really does the most with what she has yeah and i think she enjoys that she has that she gets to even meet her to him in public <laughs> yeah um i just love the line i assume you met my daughter hope i did she's great <laughs> <laughs> after she's just been glaring at him for a minute yeah as you said it's, it's definitely there to you know to have that that kind of broken relationship um she's definitely good with it and the the, the entire concept of you know, Hank, you're try striving so hard to protect her that he won't even tell her, you know, how her mother died. And she knows it like he does. You know, we lost her mother in a plane crash. You know, it's bad enough that she won't tell me how she died. Would you please stop telling me that lie? Like, that's how broken their relationship is. And you know, that that one scene where he does finally break down and tells her the truth is just firstly, Michael Douglas. Oh, my gosh. Like, that's why you hire like an actor of his caliber, you know, to for a seemingly small role like this, because you know, he could he can make a line that a line like she turned off her regulator and went subatomic. He can make that line. He can you know, he can make you cry with a line like that because he's just so there's just so much emotion behind his you know very grizzled manly voice. Yeah, I'll always point towards him and uh, Anthony Hopkins. It's like I don't care how small the role is, if you put him there, they will make it worth it. Or, or the scene where a, a, after the climax and he's talking, he's trying to trying to get Scott to tell him any information he can about the quant- about what he saw in the quantum realm. And he's just, he feel he feels like this fragile old man where he's wounded. He's got his arm in a sling. He's in pajamas. And he's just like desperate for this little, whatever kind of hope he can find. He's like, yo, is it possible? Like again, he's just a great little moment of acting where he's, he's not even really doing anything, but you just see it all in his eyes. Uh, so what do you, what do you all think of, um, of this particular villain, you know, because it's weird in one sense, he is kind of this, uh, the he falls into that stereotypical, forgettable Marvel villain that a lot of people put him in, and yet at the same time, 
he is involved in that. He's just another picture of this like broken parental kind of uh, motif that we have here. Uh, are are y'all fans of him as a character? Sort of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like it's kind of weird. Like I. I go between like, you know, he is somewhat forgettable, you know, um, you know, if you ask for lists of Marvel villains, you know, he rarely is going to be near the top. Um, you know, that being said, you know, the the villain of Yellow Jacket was a great was a great um, pairing for uh, for Ant-Man. You know, it was it was interesting because he got to fight somebody who was similar to him, but at the same time was kind of weaponized and different. So I, I liked that element of it. Um and I did like the the dysfunctional relationship between Hank and Darren. I did think that was that was well done, and I did think it added a little bit of in, a little bit of a little bit of more interest to it. Um, but I think in the end, the you know the actor didn't fail the role, the character didn't fail the actor. I just kind of feel like what failed it was that there just wasn't enough room in the script to develop him because there was all these other characters we had to develop. And so in the end, he had to kind of be that support to further develop the hero, not necessarily develop on his own. Yeah. Like he, he pretty much disappears from the film entirely for the entire second act. Like there's a good 30, 40 minute chunk where he just isn't there. And that, like, that doesn't work for a character that you need to be well developed. Like, I appre- I really appreciate and respect that he's at, he's far more integrated into the film's themes than say like a Ronin or a Malekith or you know take your pick of you know mediocre MCU villains. I do like that, but I, I I do agree that I feel like he doesn't. And there was I was thinking about how I would fix that, and I think there's one make him a lot less evil. Like he doesn't need to kill baby white lambs. Like it's just. Like make him like just don't have him evil. He doesn't need to be gloop gunning, you know, senators in in the very first scene. Um, so like that that part is is I think does undermine whatever sympathy we have for him is the fact that he is so blatantly crazy. And also, don't make him crazy. I think because I feel like that's such a boring and uninteresting way to characterize someone. Like oh, they're just crazy. That if, if and if it's, it's just you know quote unquote insanity, then there's there's nothing. There's no emotional or tr- like truth to, to be found in there. It's, it, it just feels like kind of a lazy choice. So I feel like don't have him cr- crazy. And don't don't even make him evil per se. Like have the entire film about just he's 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 cracked Hank's you know Scott uh, Hank's formula and he's gonna sell it to the U.S. military or something. And to where but but you know Hank it feels it's so dangerous that he has to come in and steal it and then. I think redoing the climax instead of having having uh, uh, Darren just go crazy and go after his daughter for for no real reason other than revenge. What if like they break in, they steal the last of the formula and blow up the lab? So they literally have the last of the formula, the last of Darren's entire life's work. You know the the thing that you know he was trying to use to regain his father's love, and they escape with that. So then he goes and pursues them, and maybe then kidnaps. Scott's daughter has like a bargaining chip to try and get the last of the formula back or something. And then they could have the climax. And also they really need to have Hank in the room for the climax of the film, because that's the conflict. The whole, his whole thing was, you know, his, his, his daddy issues with his surrogate father figure. And like, I think some of his best scenes in the movie, uh, that, that scene where he breaks, he breaks into their house and he's, and that I, I quoted earlier, you know, the, why did you push me away? Like Corey Stoll is like acting his butt off in those moments. 
Um, and I think you know he's good moments with Hope. There's one shot that I really love. Um, it's like during the main heist where Evangeline Lily walks around a corner and he's just standing there and he just stares at her for like five seconds, and then he just like goes like, "How do I look?" And he like gets this like really awkward boyish face going like it's like it's really good performance, but it, it's it's given so little time to shine and really develop. It's weird. I I actually probably um, undersold how much I like Corey Stoll's performance earlier. I I actually I really like his performance quite a lot. I I think that you can tell with three or four moments in this that you're like man, if this guy had more. He could be the the he's capable of delivering an upper echelon villain performance. Um, Definitely, and I the, the moment where uh, you know she's trying to talk him out, and he's like, "Wait, wait, wait!" She's right. Like, whenever he freaks out, like, what happens in that moment? You know, there's there's it's kind of being played for drama. I it's not. I don't think it's pushed hard enough in that scene. But just his moment that like where you're wondering what he's going to be doing and he feels that he has to do it himself. And there's a line, even though it rests on like the crazy aspect <laughs> that I know you're not a fan of. And I'm not really either. I, I think I could have been if they went in a different angle that I'll talk about. But uh, but just the line where uh, he, he's in Cassie's room and she's like, are you a monster? And he's just like, do I look like a monster? Like he's mm-hmm. just, but I, I said it even, like I, I said it probably creepier than the way it comes off there. It's almost... It's creepy the way he says it, but it's almost like sad. Like it's, it's being delivered by this guy who's broken and is almost like accepted of that kind of brokenness, um, which is weird because that's an idea that the movie does not earn at all. But I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I, I look at Spider-Man One, like the Raimi Spider-Man One, is like the gold standard for superhero <laughs> origins. But like I, I think about Willem Dafoe. Uh, as Osborne there. Do you know how much I sacrificed? (laughs) (laughs) This, he's a character in this movie, you know, like this, he's, he's just as, uh, integral to the plot as anyone else. And he's like, you know, they go the crazy route, but it's just, it's done so well and so sympathetically that I think, I feel like you could somehow try to, to go a similar angle. Maybe not, you know, obviously it's, it's it's not the same just by the nature of you know everybody's relationship to each other you can't go that same route but i don't know i th- i think there's a way if they went to him kind of like losing it more and more because of uh of the particles or whatever like i think you can build there and you can make it work if you incorporate that if maybe you help shift the blame to that like brokenness that he is at the end more so to hank pym um and then maybe like, I don't know, try to have some last plea for redemption from Hank if you have him in the room there. You can try to actually derive from drama because, despite the fact that the film, for like asks us to to like take note of, hey, look, this this you know broken parental relationship is a common theme we're even using with our villain. It it doesn't go that extra step of trying to derive any drama from that. So I I think trying to to lean on that more in the finale would have would have worked more um yeah like have darren like spend the entire finale instead of like screaming out pointless lines like i will disintegrate you or your very existence is insulting like think like cliche villain lines that mean nothing have him like raging against hank like like make it about him and hank like i don't really he, he doesn't even know scott like what uh, making making his whole 
motivation vengeance against Scott doesn't doesn't really mean a lot because they don't even know each other. It should be about it should be between him and Hank. And what's so weird is you think that that's what they're setting up, like especially with this conversation with Hope, where he's like, "Hey, we were both broken by your father," you know, like you get the idea that his entire he exists to <laughs> to like refute uh, the dis like just the dismissal he received from Hank, like. Everything is for him, and for that that broken relationship to not even really be a factor in the finale, it's it's just a really weird, questionable decision to me. Yeah, because definitely, I I agree with you guys that I think that looking at the familiar um, nature of the relationships, having that not be in the finale was definitely odd, you know. And I think that even if they wanted to have him, you know, be raging against you know Scott, you know, at the end and stuff, I think that there could have been. You know, like you said, instead of this like generic like, oh, I'm going to get revenge on you, like even they could have turned that around into that like, oh, why are you now taking my place? You oh, know, yeah. with yeah. Hank, with Hank, you know, why, you know, why did he give you the suit? Why are you getting the keys to the kingdom? So, so to speak, you know, when you're a felon, you're out of prison, you know, whatever. And I think that there could have been a lot more of that tied in because, uh, you know, I, I agree with you guys. I think the finale, well filmed, well with like the Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> I laugh every it's a, time that gets As a set action set piece, the whole sequence is fantastically shot, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, I think that there could have been a lot more emotion added in there, and I definitely agree with you, Gabriel, that um, that Hank should have been should have been there somehow. Whether it was him patching into Darren's, you know, um, you know, audio, you know, of his helmet or a hologram or you know, some somehow he should have been there in some way. I agree. Man, even you you mentioning trying to go the angle of of you know, like what was it about you? You know, why not me? And and try to try to make the ending find you know you kind of have that natural in to make it personal there and then you could you kind of could give him ammo to throw at scott of you know like you're doing this to try to repair your relationship with your daughter like look at the guy who's mentoring you like you're you're working on behalf of a guy who has no relationship with his daughter like try to throw the irony of that at him during the finale it, it's it's just weird because the more i think about it, it's like You've it's it's like playing a game of chess where you you set up for a checkmate and then you never make the move. It's you've got these different relationships where it's like you have a number of ways to go with it and then it's just you don't do anything, like you don't capitalize on any of that. Like when it counts at the end, at least in terms of where the villain is. Well, and I guess they, the, they did the last... fix the relationship between Paul Rudd and Bobby Cannavale. That that was important. They fixed that in the climax. So. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Um, and, and branching out of what I think would have been improved by making Darren Cross less evil, and I think that would give Hope a better arc in the film, is if she wasn't on you know Team Ant Man till about the halfway point. Like, what if we open this movie and like Hank is so disconnected from his daughter that he hasn't even like they have they're not even working together. She's still working with Darren Cross, who's just a normal businessman who's not a crazy crazy mad scientist thing. And like Hank doesn't even go to his daughter first. He goes to a complete stranger you to ask for help. And it's not until like the halfway mark where like hope kind of comes in and finds out that, you know, their plans. And that's when we kind of have, have to have a confrontation between uh, Hank and hope, you know, to, and then you could deal with the whole, like you didn't even trust me enough to tell me. Like, I feel like if like she didn't come on board to their team, like until about the halfway point where she could kind of have an arc of, you know, being so disconnected from her father to, you know, 
to slowly repairing that relationship over the course of like the third act. I don't know. It's just, uh, I'm not entirely sure how I would plot that out, but I just feel like if she really had to make, if, if we, I think we should have given her a choice to make, like she doesn't, when we come in kind of the, the main choice is already you know, the choice to work with her father. It's already kind of made. And there's, there's not a lot of like real conflict on her part. The conflict is, you know, allowing, you know, for Hank to finally open up and tell her the truth. Yeah, the only thing she's really, the only choice left to her is to like, to choose to go forward with Scott. <laughs> we kind of already talked about how that. It's really just that's kind of dealt with in a line. Like, yeah, he he's hard because he loves you. Oh, okay. Well, anyways, so you know, here's how here's how the suit works. It's it's like it's such a a, a well, quick resolution. I, I, I like that. You know, sorting out your like like controlling ants is a metaphor. For sorting out your family trauma. <laughs> oh, that idea is funny. And and I think it's fine. It's just the fact that that is kind of like her one emotional obstacle. <laughs> it's just sorted so quickly. Um, I think my last real issue with, with the conflict um, is that despite, um, despite the fact that the film feels intentionally small, it still keeps reminding us that it is absolutely you know, important, it, it cannot, we cannot allow the possibility of, of pin particles escaping. And I, I don't ever quite buy, like, it's incredible technology, but I guess- I mean, did you see the this, commercial, man? <laughs> do I? The, the evil commercial showing all the assassinations. Oh, yeah. I love how hilariously and overtly villainous that was. It's like, like going on assassinations in a briefcase and stuff. Pretty- pretty amazing stuff but like so I, I get that it is dangerous i just feel like at this point you know 12 movies and we've got like people breathing out fire in the mcu we've got thor and asgardians and stuff and we've got this huge you know nanotech all this kind of stuff going on it's it's just weird that for a movie that does so often feel intentionally isolated and small the movie is like explicitly and overtly telling us that this is like this would be a catastrophic event if if this got out. Like, I, that might just I be another quite... outworking of Hank's arrogance that he thinks my thing is so important. So, <laughs> I would have liked that angle, but I think it's just like that idea is justified too often by characters external to him saying it. You know, where he's like, "A who is it that you know? What do you call the uh, the man who has all, like the supply of the most powerful weapon, like the most powerful man on earth?" It's like, no. No, even if you got this, after what I've seen in the previous 11 movies, you're still not the most powerful man on earth. Like I just it's it's weird that they're selling it such like as as such a big grand kind of threat, like potential threat, cuz it's just I yeah, it's it's cool stuff. It's, you know, dangerous stuff, but I don't think that the pimp particles are as like potentially catastrophic and that he represents quite the threat that the film wants us to think, despite also wanting us to think that this is a small, I don't know. It, it's just a, a weird. I mean, in a film where the, the greatest conflict is, you know, custody rights, I think they kind of almost sell it to me at least. See, that's, it's weird. Cause it, it almost has the opposite for me where it's like it, these events, like it, it already feels so personal. It's like, why, why do I need to go there? 
like and custody or like what a you know what a crazy thing that you never expect them to tackle and so pairing that side by side with typical evil businessman wants powerful suit that makes him most powerful man it's like okay well, we didn't really need that and i'm not quite sure i buy it anyway so i don't know maybe it's just me though <laughs> Byron, is there anything at all in the film that you wanted to talk about? Um, there was a see, there was a there was actually an interesting uh, an interesting cut scene that I kind of wish they wouldn't have cut. Uh, that I just thought kind of tied some of the universe stuff together. Um, in the beginning, when uh, when the uh, Darren Cross's uh, buyers are coming in to uh, you know, like he has Hydra and everything like that. Mm-hmm. There's a uh, figure that you see in one of the scenes that um, is expounded on a little bit in a deleted scene that we actually see that he's a Ten Rings agent uh-huh. uh, who is there. And I thought that was a very interesting. I was kind of sad that they cut that because I'm a huge Ten Rings fan. And so I love, you know, and and I've been like irritated that all the Ten Rings scenes have been cut. You know, Iron Man 2, it was cut. And, you know, in this one, it was cut. I'm like uh, a little irritating, but... <laughs> Um, one thing. Well, though, it's that, in the title of one of the new movies. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Watch them somehow cut it all out of it. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be the post-credit scene. Like, eh, no, you know. <laughs> what you, oh. you remind you reminded me of uh, Cross's line. They're from Hydra. They're not what they were. They're actually doing interesting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh. No, you know, it kind of goes back to like, you know, what what you guys were saying with like the arrogance of like some of these characters of like James saying, well, you know, the suit, you know, and these particles aren't really the most like dangerous thing in the world. But like to these characters, it is. And I think it's very interesting that if you look through the MCU, you can see certain characters and you can see certain villains that they that their plot or their thing is the most important thing in the world. You know, it's like even going back to like Iron Man three, you know, first film after Avengers where we've seen aliens coming down, you know, like these giant alien like slug things flying through the sky, you know, and everything. And then you have, you know, the recording of the Mandarin saying, you know, like there's no such thing as heroes. You know, I'm going to kill them all. Basically, it's like, did you see? what just happened in new york you know, like, you know so i think it's kind of funny to see that kind of like egotistical um nature play out in some of our heroes and villains yeah it's the plight of having to do any sort of movie with any sort of meaningful threat after you have a wormhole full of aliens yeah <laughs> so true let's drop a city out of the sky yeah. <laughs> um and one last thing i i did like I, I liked the way that the film didn't villainize. I, I don't I don't remember his name. I think it was Paxton, Bobby Cannavale's character. I'm like, you know, he's not a huge character, but I, I like that, you know, he's just a normal guy trying to protect his new family. And I, I, I really appreciate that he actually has a really sweet relationship going on with uh, Cassie on his own. Like they seem to they, they really get along together or like where he, you know, he, he is like standing in front of her to, to protect her. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not a huge deal, but like the, the cheap, comedy route would have been to make him you know a evil you know a-hole but i like that he's, he's just a, a decent dude yeah and i think he portrays that really well it's like you especially in the first interaction between uh between he and scott you you really get his point where scott does kind of just despite the fact like yeah he's justified in wanting to be there because it is his daughter he kind of does show up and act like a child and you get that he's trying to, especially after seeing the kind of person Scott is, you kind of understand his desire to be <laughs> that like responsible stability in Cassie's life, you know? And yeah, and yeah it, it would have been super easy to, to play up the comedy. And, you know, I, I think a, a lesser movie that would have relied on, on more just kind of established cliches 
would have tried to find to find some way to to get Scott. Uh, uh, and I forget is her name Maggie the his his ex wife yeah um, I want to say that's it like I I think that a lesser movie that would have relied more on that would have tried to have somehow like revealed that he is an awful person and get them back together somehow but it's like no it's ultimately this is just him trying to be able to see his daughter again and we don't need to try to fix everything in his life so yeah I thought I thought it was good. And I liked that Paxton and Cassie, you know, going along with what you said, especially, you know, Maggie, that they weren't really viewed as like they weren't made as as villainous. You know, like Maggie was not a bad character. She wasn't trying to keep Scott away. You know, she was just trying to be responsible. And mm-hmm. and I like that because I think that, you know, so many films, you know, as you were saying, James, they kind of assign these tropes to certain characters. And I like that they kind of resisted that and went away from that, especially in the family dynamic. Watch your language. What language? I said hat. <laughs> Little adorable interaction. Like, are you trying to find my daddy? I hope you don't catch him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she's the best. Yeah. All right. Um, so I, I think we've, we've kind of pretty well covered this movie. Um, uh, really quickly, uh, moving into the score. Uh, do you all have any thoughts about the score of this film? Um, I, I like it quite a bit. Um, but <laughs> certainly not as as much as uh, one of our uh, commenters. Uh, I I think that uh, it does a good job of kind of like it's it stops just short of like being a parody of like the heist film like that kind of like mi- it sounds like there are times where it's trying to lead into like the Mission Impossible with those those drums, but uh, but I think that it feels like really tonally in line with the movie and i think the main theme is catchy like that's what he said that i agree with like it's an incredibly catchy song and of all of the mcu scores for whatever reason i find myself just always humming this theme huh. like i'll just randomly doing something and i'm like dun, 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 dun. oh wait well, like why how did that get back in my head like it's just it's this kind of constant thing so there's definitely something to be said for for the fact that he did, you know, in a, in a series where a lot of the themes just get so lost in the movie to where, like, by the end, like, minutes after you finish, you couldn't even recall what it is. This this is a very clear, here is the theme. This is the main Ant-Man theme. It's recognizable. We play it when we need to. So I, I think it's pretty good. <laughs> My notes that I wrote down while listening to the score for the, for the main theme was uh, Mission Impossible Light. Just different enough to avoid a lawsuit, but you're not fooling anyone. <laughs> like, that, 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 that's what the, it felt like this is it's so mission impossible maybe i wouldn't feel this if i hadn't you know listened to all five mission impossible scores when we, when we covered those movies but i don't know, like it, it kind of like it, it's a, it is a fun little theme it has some touches that define itself you know differently but it's it's a ripoff um except for i do think its main theme though does kind of divert and and it sound it's to me it sounds like Ant Man. Like at the end of that, I was like, oh, that's that main theme. Yeah, like that's I'm picturing him surfing on ants right now. Hmm. Did you have any thoughts, Byron? Yeah, you know, I I did enjoy the theme. You know, um, kind of as James said, like I wasn't like a like a crazy like fan of it. Um, but I thought it, it did its job well. Um, there was two there was two uh, tracks that I did like in particular. Uh, Tales to Astonish was one that I liked. Um, I thought it kind of had like this, you know, very much of a get smart vibe to it mm-hmm. kind of. Um, but it also like threw in like kind of a Latin vibe in there as well. Yes, yeah, it felt like a 70s 
TV show intro or something. It was really fun. Very much so. I That was probably my favorite one. And then I also liked Become the Hero, too, because it kind of had a little bit more of an emotional, somber note to it, um, you know, while also still being, you know, a little bit light as well. So th- those two were probably my favorites. Yeah, so I'm not entirely sure what a cinematic sound radio was talking about, because I found this to be probably the dullest of all the MCU, MCU scores I've listened to so far. Mm. Um, like, there are, there are moments that I enjoyed. Uh, the tracks Ant 47 and I'll call him Anthony they had like this really fun thing where they would have like jazz without the, you know, without the saxophones and, and the brass where you have like the drums or the, the kind of the free flowing piano stuff going out underneath. That was pretty cool. Um, like it's, it's playful, but overall I just, this score left so little impact on me. I would, I would agree with you. Cause like when I, um, when I like looked up the score, I kind of suddenly thought I was like, wait, I don't remember anything from this. Like you know, it was like, it was kind of, it was kind of funny that I actually had to like kind of put some thought into it of like, okay, what was the score of this film? And then, you know, re-listening to it, of course it came back to me, mm-hmm. but it was, it was, it was forgettable. Definitely. <laughs> All right. So now let's move into our rating, our star rating and ranking uh, Byron. What do you give this film out of five stars and how do you rank the MCU so far? Ooh, I would say for this film out of five stars, um, I would say from a filmmaking standpoint of, um, of like well-made quality, I would say it's a solid 3.5, um, from a enjoyable standpoint of like how much I liked it. I would say it was probably a 4.3. Okay. (laughs) And what about the, your ranking for the MC so far? Um, up till now I have, and this is a enjoyment ranking. This isn't necessarily how I feel from a filmmaking standpoint. It's just how I enjoy them. Uh-huh. Um, so, so far I have Ant-Man at the top. Um, it's just as a rewatchability. I love it. Um, uh, Thor comes next. Uh, Iron Man, uh, Incredible Hulk, Iron Man 2, uh, Avengers. I said, what, what, what? <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> Iron Man 2 is ranked higher than Avengers for me. Oh, my head uh, hurts. Yeah, I, I love me some whiplash. Uh, then, uh, so that Avengers, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 1, uh, Captain America, the First Avenger, Thor, the Dark World, Iron Man 3, and then Age of Ultron. <laughs> James, would you back me up if I cut him out of the call right now? <laughs> I have a feeling that this has all just been a ploy for him to be able to like, give that list in front of Ugh. you. Just, just, just give yours, James. I don't. I can't. I can't do this anymore. Just all right. Um, so uh, for my uh, my ranking of it, I looking kind of a uh, what are you saying? Kind of looking at it cinematically. Um, well, I get. I guess cinem- that my thoughts uh, and my personal enjoyment are actually pretty similar. So I kind of went back and forth between three to three and a half. I think I settled on three and a half, um, just because, like, despite um, the fact that I, I do think that this script just leaves there. There's a lot of holes that I think should have been filled, and I, I think that while the some of the action scene is really creative, uh, there's also in between that I think there's. There's not a whole lot to keep me super captivated outside of uh, of you know the fun performances. So I, I'm, but in spite of that, I uh, I think that it is original enough. You know, there's not really another movie that plays up visuals quite the same way it does, uh, and I do think it has quite a bit of heart. So I think I'm settling on three and a half uh, out of five. My my ranking is uh, number one, Winter Soldier. Number two, The Avengers. Number three, Guardians of the Galaxy. 
number four, Iron Man, number five, Iron Man 3, number six, Captain America the First Avenger, number seven, Thor, number eight, Age of Ultron, number nine, Ant-Man, number 10, Iron Man 2, number 11, The Incredible Hulk, and number 12, Thor the Dark World. Uh, so I would give this film uh, four stars. Like it's it's just a fun movie. Like I watch it and I'm just smiling the whole time. It's very light, and I think like, intentionally so. It's just one of those movies that just like stands out. I think like as a rebuke against the people who's like, oh, the MCU movies are all the same. Like they made Ant Man. It's, it's just a fun, nice, just nice movie that I, I always enjoy watching. Paul Rudd is. I don't think we talked. We didn't talk enough about Paul Rudd in this episode. Paul Rudd's great. Um, yeah, so for my ranking, I would say number one, The Avengers, number two, Guardians of the Galaxy, number three, The Winter Soldier, number four, Iron Man, number five, Thor, number six, Age of Ultron, number seven, Ant-Man, number eight, Iron Man 3, number nine, The Incredible Hulk, number 10, Captain America, The First Avenger, number 11, Iron Man 2, and way down there at the bottom, Thor The Dark World. All right, so let's really quickly run through the box office. Uh, on its initial release, it earned $180 million domestically and $339 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of $519 million on its $130 to $160 million budget. Uh, I think it's probably the lowest budgeted MCU film. Um, it's the 21st highest grossing MCU film d- domestically and the 20th worldwide. So, you know, not a huge hit, but with a small budget like that, it, it, it's definitely made some money. Um as far as the initial critical and audience reception, it holds an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 64 on Metacritic. Like, no one was like, no one, I don't remember anyone like being raving about it and being over the moon about it, but I, I do remember like people kind of appreciated the film's low stakes, you know, its big heart, its sense of humor and fun. Um, although I, I do remember some people kind of using the fact that it was, it felt so insignificant against it. Like, where, why did they even bother making this movie? Like, as uh, I remember Joshua said earlier, uh, like, it, it felt like a filler movie. And then, of course, there was the whole like all, all the film bros who, like contractually ob- obligated to be you know outraged that uh, Edgar Wright was fired by the big evil corporations and all that. Um, uh, and and I, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it was with this movie where we kind of like the the MCU formula started to come to be like a common criticism. I, like I don't remember hearing it before that. Do y'all? I, I would agree with you on that. I, I think that this film was the start of that. Um, you know, and I, I feel like the I feel like the birth of it of like kind of the formula of um of the MCU started with Guardians of the Galaxy, but I feel like it was solidified with Ant Man. Mm-hmm. And then I feel like that's kind of where people started recognizing common themes, common tones, and then that that argument started coming out. And that is honestly one of my main criticisms of the MCU, despite being a fan and seeing all the films and enjoying them. You know, some of the tonal issues are mm-hmm. kind of what I get behind. <laughs> uh so it's so weird i feel like i would have had a much better idea of legacy before i saw some of these comments because <laughs> i i just assumed that the legacy was was almost you know just short of being universally like yeah it was really good like rarely you know would people say like i would have never in a million years have guessed that one comment uh good on him for enjoying well, I, it that much I, other than other than like a josh burkey i i don't know anyone who hates this movie yeah, well, I mean, I was thinking of the guy who was over the moon and oh. thought it's like the, you know, the the greatest film since Citizen Kane, <laughs> like is is the way you'd think based off of his. Uh... But yeah, so like uh, the comments just kind of went from like absolute un- untethered love to just like this is the worst thing we've seen from the series. So I, maybe those are the outliers. I'm going to go ahead and 
talk about its legacy as if those are outliers, <laughs> um, because it generally seems as if you're not going to really see a lot of people who outright dislike this movie and you're not going to see a lot of people who think it's like the greatest thing ever it's it's mainly like yeah that was a that was a good movie and it's weird whenever you ask people about it because this has happened to me quite a bit where when it comes up in conversation uh and this is why i agree with you about the the formula thing is like this without even like without any sort of like prompt that criticism kind of comes into the conversation naturally where it's like, it was good. You know, I feel like it's like kind of comedic Iron Man, you know? Um, and I feel like that stance was only more solidified after Dr. Strange came out where they're, you know, that's like, Oh, now this is mystical Iron Man. So I, I think that a lot of people are like, yeah, it's, it's pretty by the book. It's a fun, good time, but it's nothing incredible. And, and I think over the years, that's kind of been <laughs> with the exceptions of, uh, of some people on either side. That's generally the consensus. I think there was a small camp that just really loves the kind of low stakes, big hearted thing that the film has that, that has come to really appreciate it. Um, like I, I like in the film circles, I know I do know this. Uh, there are a few people who like rank this pretty high. Yeah. I do think Aaron White, I think has it in his top 10 still. Yeah. All right. So that was our review of Ant-Man. I hope you enjoyed it. And again, if you did, I'd ask you to please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Uh, if you want to follow us on Facebook, where there's Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, we are at both of those at Franchised Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on, Byron. And uh, where can people follow you online? Well, so people can follow me on uh, Twitter. I'm at uh, at Byron Lafayette. Uh, I also am on uh, Facebook um, with the same at Byron Lafayette. So they can find me both of those places. And uh, if they happen to be on Vero, I am also on there as well. I knew you'd get a Vero <laughs> plug in here. <laughs> I had to do it. Uh, but man, yeah, I really appreciate you guys having me on the podcast. It was a lot of fun. And uh, it's, it's not often I get to talk about this film. So it was very enjoyable. Yeah, definitely. Um, what about you, James? Yeah, so you can follow me on Letterboxd. I'm there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Uh, Letterboxd is my Vero, Byron, uh, by the way. <laughs> by the way. <laughs> and you can also join us over on Facebook at The Outer Rim, a Star Wars group. Byron's over there. We have loads of fun conversations. We treat uh, you. Yes, his uh, opinions so on you... Star Wars are like even stranger than his on the MCU. It's fun. <laughs> but, hey, I will say this. I never have as much fun talking about Star Wars with somebody that I disagree with this much. So uh, you are still more than welcome uh, with us over there, Byron. But yeah, so definitely join us over there, though, if you like Star Wars and you're you're ready to get rolling in a marathon going into uh, Rise of Skywalker. Um, so I am also on Letterboxd and there's Gabriel Green. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as at Gabe A. Green and I am on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. And I also have a YouTube channel where I make these like movie-based music videos i put out one kind of celebrating flight and film uh, a little while back uh and my channel is a uh, greenery 01 you can check that out if you're interested so the next film we will be talking about uh captain america civil war which is actually my favorite mcu movie and i'm very excited about this whoa spoilers oh yeah so until next week we will see you in the sequel back it up back it up we're just back it up that's it back it up back it up back it up just keep back it up